Science Friday is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Later in the hour, we'll talk about a small town with a big cannabis business and take a closer look at medical marijuana. But first, you know the oceans contain many mysteries, right? And every month, it seems, explorers find a new sea creature or two lurking in the deep. And in fact, earlier this year came word of an incredible treasure trove of new species. I mean, more than 5,000. It came with a surprise. They weren't octopuses or angelfish or anemones. Instead, these researchers have found viruses, and not just any viruses, RNA viruses. That's the same type that our friend SARS-CoV-2 falls into. Here with more about the significance of this viral mother load is SciFry's Christy Taylor. Hi there, Christy. Hey, Ira. You know, I was a bit shocked to hear how many RNA viruses they found. Should we be surprised that there are so many viruses in the deep blue sea? You know, step one, Ira, I would say don't panic. We've known about viruses in the ocean for a pretty long time. DNA viruses, that's the other major type, have been studied for decades. But the RNA viruses in the ocean are new and exciting because they've been so hard to pin down. The new research is the result of many, many water samples and some advanced machine learning tools to sort out all the RNA sequences these researchers found. Fair enough. But what are all these viruses doing down there? Why get so excited about viruses? That's a really great question, Ira, especially given how much our lives have really been changed by just one virus in the last three years. I talked to Dr. Ahmed Zayed about this. He's a microbiologist and research scientist at Ohio State University. And what excites him about all these viruses is something that has nothing to do with us, but rather the way viruses may be affecting the ecosystems when they infect plants and animals in the ocean. It may even connect to climate change at the end of the day. Here he is explaining that. So we know about DNA viruses that they um, can manipulate their host and can change the element cycling. uh, So the rates of element cycling in the ocean. One of these elements is carbon, which is really important because of uh, how essential the ocean is for regulating the climate and for um, basically sucking carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So that's for DNA viruses. The RNA virus discovery was lagging for multiple reasons. One of them is that the tools uh, were not there actually to see RNA viruses with enough confidence and also because of the nature of these viruses. So these viruses are made of RNA, which is less stable in the environment than DNA. So DNA viruses and their particles, they can stay for longer um, than RNA viruses. So that that is kind of like why also it was hard to see RNA viruses in natural samples as compared to DNA viruses. And we had an amazing opportunity to explore these viruses in the ocean because 
we had this amazing data set that was collected by the Tara Oceans experts. We had samples from the surface down to 1,000 meters deep, covering large geographic range. And it holds the answers for a lot of interesting questions. So you took this data set, which involves sampling seawater from dozens of locations all over the planet, deep water, shallow water, uh, stretching from the North to the South Pole, and you found lots and lots and lots of RNA viruses. Tell me about the abundance of what you found. So we started first by looking at all of the RNA that is coming from the plankton in our samples. So we had uh, different eukaryotic groups and also uh, we had bacteria. Um, And we looked across all of these. And we basically tried to distinguish between the RNA that belongs to the host and the RNA which is uh, belongs to the virus, uh, which is representing the viral genome. And we ended up having around 5,500 of these species rank uh, clusters for RNA viruses. Uh, that's uh, an incredible amount of viruses <laughs> to find. Yeah, that uh, sounds like it. There, I mean, like to put things into perspective, we know that uh, there are around... 3.5 thousand virus species that are deposited in public databases. So that was an incredible number to see. Are, are you talking about 3,500 ocean viruses in public databases? All RNA viruses. That's okay, correct. so you found more than double the known number of RNA viruses. Yeah, relative to what is deposited in public databases. Okay, okay. So that was um, an incredible number to see. And we started to explore uh, the diversity of these um, uh, species rank clusters at different taxonomic levels. Um, And our viruses were not just so many, but they were really diverse. To the extent that we uh, proposed five new phyla on top of the five that were already known. A phyla is a whole... um taxonomic category of organisms, you know, for people who maybe don't understand how different that is, how does that compare to things like we found another variant of COVID-19, for example? I would say if we would look at the uh, uh, phyla uh, within uh, the kingdom of Animalia, they can be as different as uh, arthropods from humans. So, and arthropods include ants, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, then, you know, just looking at where you found these species? Like, are there some parts of the ocean that seemed to have more virus than other parts of the ocean? Uh, So we actually looked at the abundance uh, of these viruses across all of our samples. Not necessarily uh, how abundant uh, viruses in one ocean basin versus the other, but rather at how abundant different viral groups, so these virus phyla, uh, across ocean basins. Um, And to our surprise, we found that two of the novel phyla that we have suggested in our study um, to hold the uh, most abundant viruses on average across the global ocean. So one phylum, which we called Tara varicota, um, and uh, was uh, on average the most abundant across the temperate and tropical waters. And the other phylum uh, that we also proposed, Arctic varicota, Um, the viruses of this phylum were also on average the most abundant across the Atlantic Arctic part of the ocean. That was also surprising because there have been studies uh, for RNA viruses in the ocean before. They were focusing on specific oceanic regions um, or just focus on specific um, ocean uh, organisms. All of these previous studies never have seen um, the viruses that we found in our study before. So it was shocking for us to find such abundant viruses 
flying under the radar for so long. Mm -hmm. And what I think I'm hearing you say is that the most abundant viruses are ones we've never actually seen before. Yes, that's correct. That's incredible. One question I feel like this very much begs, um, people are going to hear new viruses found in the ocean and maybe panic a little bit because, you know, we think about COVID-19 as a new virus that emerged from an animal host. These are not viruses that we need to worry about. Is that correct? Most probably, yeah, because the gap is really big between things that are the set of hosts that we explored in the ocean and um, humans and, and primates. But also some of these viruses infect multicellular organisms and some of them infect fish larvae and uh, so infect fish and infect, infect larvae. So there are uh, multicellular organisms that can be infected by these viruses as well. And they can have um, several levels of ecological impacts. Uh, it's not just about cycling elements and uh, uh, changing the rate of the biological carbon bump, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and you keep mentioning, you've mentioned carbon a couple times now, and I did want to get back to this idea that viruses are part of ecosystems. They're you know, very numerous, they may be very small, but they are in all of these cells in these ecosystems in the ocean. Can you talk a little bit more about what we know about the ways these viruses may be shaping their ecosystems? So our knowledge is mainly based on DNA viruses. We we know about DNA viruses um, that they can uh, influence their host in several ways and that can uh, really impact the uh, carbon cycling in the ocean. We know that some viruses can carry genes that we call auxiliary metabolic genes. Um, they are similar to the metabolic genes that the host carry um, and they can change the rates of the of this process. Um, so you can imagine that they can slow down or speed up carbon transformation uh, once it takes over the host metabolism. So that's one way. Other viruses can just infect the host and lyse the cells, so it releases its content. Uh, so all of that carbon that was fixed inside the cell um, is now available for other microbes that can respire, so it, it gets released back to the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. Um, other viruses, more interestingly, were found to blow up the cells and form a sticky material that actually makes bigger aggregates. So all of these blown up cells get stick together and uh, these bigger aggregate and heavier aggregates sink to the ocean. So it's actually helping the carbon to get exported to uh, the deep ocean. Um, this is really important to a process as a process because ocean plankton um, are responsible for exporting around 25% uh, of the carbon dioxide that is emitted by humans. Um, so you can imagine the central role um, of viruses, potential central role of viruses for gluing these cells together and making the uh, export of these aggregate to the uh, ocean and easier. So, so what I think I'm hearing you say is that depending on the virus, it could make the carbon that is within the cell uh, get to the bottom of the ocean faster as opposed to being released into the atmosphere. Yes, yes, that's correct. So in 2016, there have been a study in Nature um, that specifically looked at the, the uh, contribution of different planktons uh, to the process or the association was exporting carbon to the deep ocean. And to our surprise, we found that viruses were actually the best predictors of carbon export across the global ocean. What other questions does this research create for you? And is answering them going to require more boats full of seawater samples? Uh, so, uh, yeah, so there are so many different <laughs> questions. So we are also trying to understand what is the ecological footprint 
of these RNA viruses through the lens of the hosts that they infect, but also um, by just looking at how the virus communities form, what are kind of the environmental parameters that dictate the assemblage of these different viral communities. Um, there are so many things that uh, are still um, unanswered, and we might be able to answer some of these questions using the data sets that we have created and now made public to uh, the entire scientific community. And some other questions would require us to collect more samples or sequencing uh, sequence them differently or develop new tools to try to answer some of these um, new questions. Well, good luck with that. And thank you again so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much, Christy, for having me. Dr. Ahmed Zayed is a microbiologist and research scientist at The Ohio State University. He joined me from Columbus, Ohio. So there's a lot more to viruses than disease, it turns out. Thank you so much, Christy. Thank you, Ira. SciFi's Christy Taylor. We have to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at two sides of the legal cannabis coin, recreational weed and medical marijuana. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. And now it's time to check in on the state of science. This is KER St. Louis Public Radio Iowa Public Radio News. Local science stories of national significance. The town of Woodlake, California is a small city in the San Joaquin Valley. It's got 7,500 people, one fast food chain, and no stoplights. What it does have is seven cannabis businesses. That's right. The recreational marijuana industry has transformed Woodlake over the years, and the tax revenue that comes from it has funded public goods, especially parks. And as more and more states legalize recreational weed, Woodlake could be an example of the massive change the industry can bring to small towns. Joining me to talk about this story is Carrie Klein, reporter for Valley Public Radio in Fresno, California. Welcome back to Science Friday. Thanks, Ira. You know, I always like to talk about following the money, no matter mm. what the story. So give us a bit of a history lesson. When did Woodlake's cannabis industry start ramping up? Well, this this all got sparked in, in 2016 when California voters approved of Prop 64. That legalized recreational cannabis for adults. And uh, it was pretty clear this would be a very highly regulated industry. And so Woodlake city officials immediately recognized that with regulations could also come the opportunity for revenue. So in 2017, a year after um, Prop 64 was passed, the city council put a measure on their ballot to levy taxes on these businesses. And then that ushered in ordinances and other regulations for how to actually allow these businesses to operate in the town. And then the first businesses started opening in 2018. I get it. And what makes Woodlake such a good place for the recreational marijuana industry? 
I mean, I think the first thing really was these tax measures. I mean, obviously, some companies and industries would be really scared off by uh, heavy taxes, but but they signaled in this era, you know, a way for the industry to operate legally for the first time. And so the city was able to attract, you know, not just dispensaries, but also cultivators, manufacturers, distributors, lots of folks on this cannabis supply chain. And so Woodlake became an oasis, kind of a beacon almost in this huge region of about 10,000 square miles that at that time were served by uh, by no other legal dispensaries, at least for uh, recreational cannabis. And so, uh, of course, with all this, however, safety was also a major concern. And so the city did limit the dispensaries to only operating two at a time. And then to learn about the other safety measures, I spoke with Jason Waters. He's the city's community development director. Background checks on on people who work there, security cameras that we can access here at City Hall. So City Hall Police Department, we can log into to a website and look at the cameras at the facility. You know, they keep logs of who goes in and out of there. Two permits from us, permits from the state. So there are a number of, of things that they have to do that most businesses would, would, would never have to do. So how does Woodlake capture tax revenue from cannabis businesses? Is it from charging the, the buyers, the people who come in a tax, and then that gets passed through? Yes, that's the largest share, retail sales tax from dispensaries. That's 5% that goes to the city on, on every retail sale. There's also a property tax and a cultivation tax. And so in the four years these businesses have been in operation in Woodlake, the city has brought in more than $2 million in tax revenue, which is pretty big for a city, as you said, of just 70 Wow. Now, I I said at the the top that the tax revenue goes to parks. Is that what's happening there? Yes, the vast majority of it does. About two thirds have gone to parks so far around the city, rehabilitating parks or bringing in new facilities, um, landscaping, things like that, bathrooms. Um, There's a good chunk of that money that's gone toward fixing sidewalks and roads around the city, and then um, also a small amount on public safety. Some of that money also goes back into safety measures at these businesses and things like conducting inspections at the facilities. Now, I would imagine when a town goes into the cannabis business, they're going to, there's going to be some pushback from some of the residents. Did that happen there? Yeah, there were definitely some people who spoke out in public meetings um, prior to the passage of these these sales or of these tax measures. Um, but the tax measure did pass, but it barely squeaked by with the two-thirds vote it needed. So one-third of the town did still oppose it. Um, and a few years into it, it, it is still easy to find residents who are uncomfortable with the industry. And some of those folks, it's just on principle. Um but others feel that they're being inundated by out-of-towners. I mean, even high schoolers that we've spoken to have told us they used to recognize most cars in town. Um, but now there's just a lot of unfamiliar you know, foot traffic and cars, especially near the dispensaries. But those out-of-towners are really grateful for this, too. You know, and here's, uh, here's an example, a, a customer I spoke to in the dispensary. His name is Jared Rawson. He injured his back in the Air Force, and he even had trouble accessing medicinal marijuana for his back pain. Unfortunately, you know, the, the hospitals just kind of want to give you all the pain meds and it doesn't, it's not good. This is a much better route. And this dispensary is about 20 minutes away from where he lives, which is much closer than the other options that he had had before. Interesting. We're going to get into medicinal marijuana in our next segment following this. So that's a good segue. But could Woodlake be a model for other small towns who want to take advantage of increased interest in recreational cannabis? Yeah, I I think absolutely it could. And I think it has been. I mean, again, Jason Waters with the city, he's told me that folks have called him um, to talk about how they crafted their tax rules and ordinances. 
I haven't done a deep dive into this, but it appears as though there have been no major patterns of increased crime, which many folks were concerned about bringing in this this industry. And of course, other local businesses like cafes, restaurants, gas stations, they all get to benefit from this increased traffic around town. Terrific, Carrie. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Yeah, thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Kerry Klein, reporter for Valley Public Radio in Fresno, California. And if you'd like to read Kerry's full story, you can head to our website, sciencefriday.com slash stateofscience. And now for the rest of the hour, we're going to talk about the other side of the legal cannabis coin, medical marijuana. As you know, more states in the U.S. are legalizing medical and recreational cannabis. And that means that millions of people have medical marijuana cards, which can be used to buy cannabis to manage pain, treat mental conditions, and help you sleep. There's a lot that cannabis can do. Yet many physicians and medical professionals do not feel knowledgeable enough to make recommendations to patients about what kinds of cannabis to use or just how much to take. That's because a majority of U.S. medical schools offer no education about medical marijuana and its effects on the body. Our next guest is trying to change that. As a doctor, he hopes to educate other medical practitioners about how medical marijuana can be an effective treatment for a wide variety of conditions. Dr. Mikhail Kogan is medical director of the George Washington Center for Integrative Medicine in Washington, D.C. He's the author of the book, Medical Marijuana, Dr. Kogan's Evidence-Based Guide to the Health Benefits of Cannabis and CBD. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. So great to be here. Uh, Nice to have you. In your book, you discuss treating your patients with medical marijuana in many different circumstances. What are the typical medical conditions where you recommend medical marijuana? Well, Ira, you already mentioned probably the most common one. And that's a pain, of course, or or all kinds of different pain syndromes, particularly chronic pain syndrome. But I use it at this point probably for over a dozen conditions. Uh, Definitely sleep, chronic insomnia. In fact, in my practice, it's becoming probably first choice to use medical cannabis. It's just simply that effective with much less side effects compared to standard medications such as Ambien. And also the other methods that treat chronic insomnia is is just more complicated and more expensive. Definitely, we're using it a lot in cancer patients and not just for pain, but for nausea, for vomiting, uh, for sleep as well as anxiety. And just a kind of a, when patients go through chemotherapy, generally speaking, they develop a lot of different symptoms. And if we have to treat those symptoms with different medications, you would have a cocktail of two, three, four, or even more medications. And cannabis often hits multiple targets at the same time. And frankly, the bigger issues, it's just often patients prefer it over other methods. And since my practice is primarily more than 50% patients over 65, for older adults, cannabis is often a lot safer than other medication choices. So I've often, maybe not as a first line, but would start using cannabis for Even conditions like Alzheimer's disease, when patients get quite agitated, we know that if we try to use standard approaches like medications, they're pretty risky, Uh, but the cannabis seems to have some evidence uh, for the efficacy. So we're probably going to have cannabis in the future shown to be effective for a large percent of all ailments that afflict us. And the reason for that is that we have our own endocannabinoid system, so literally 
we make our own pot. Our system constantly produces molecules that are similar to what we take from weed. And so we can learn, you know, we don't have enough current scientific data, but I'm pretty sure in the future we'll learn what are the ways for us to augment deficiencies of our own and the cannabinoid system with an exogenous cannabinoids. So we have receptors in our brains. Exactly. And not just brains. We have receptors in almost every cell in our body. Actually, quiz, my favorite quiz. You ready for it? I'm ready. Which part of the body does not have cannabinoid receptors and why is it so important? Which part does not Correct. have cannabinoid I'll, I'll say my toe. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> I actually, no, no, no. Your toes actually have tons of receptors, right? Because the skin and, and muscles actually are pretty rich in receptors. No, it's, a, it's actually a brainstem. And it's kind of shocking. It's not really clear evolutionary why. But brainstem is what controls our breathing. Brainstem is very heavy in opioid receptors. But why there's no cannabinoid receptors? And that's why you really can't cause death by cannabis. You can't overdose cannabis to the point of stopping breathing. I mean, you can get so stoned and stupidly drive car into the tree, but you can't directly die from respiratory suppression by cannabis. And again, it's actually a little bit of a mystery, but it tells you the story that basically our entire system is wired in the way that cannabinoid system basically and the cannabinoid system regulates almost you know, most of our processes one way or another. And it seems to be evolutionary a lot older than endogenous opioid system. It's also a very interesting factoid that often people don't know. Yeah. You know, I think I think that most people think of cannabis as just being weed. I'm smoking it, I'm you know, I'm eating it just to get high, but you say medical marijuana, there's no other drug that can treat as such a wide range of medical conditions. It's, it's a very complex drug. How many different forms or different, I don't know the right way to call it, uh, different um, varieties of, of, of cannabis is there? Right. Well, so you actually used perfect words. So we used to use words strains. We used to use words like different species. This, this was all seemingly botanically incorrect. Variety is really the right term. There seems to be over 20,000 by now that we know that we cataloged and probably going to have more. And you know, they're all one species. We used to think there's sativa, there's indica, there's rudialis. The sort of most up-to-date up information seems to point that it's just the cannabis sativa as one plant. And the, the other categories are more just a broad varieties. But within then each one of those, there are just so many thousands of different sub-varieties, if you will, or just varieties and I think that's partially explains why we have an explosion of commercial interest and grow interest in agricultural processes and growth because there's so many different ways it can be grown. There's so many different extractions methods now. It just seems like we're at this entry point into this field, which probably will end up at some point be called endocannabinoid or just cannabinoid medicine as a whole section of the medicine. Because as we learn more and as we understand more science clinically, we're probably going to realize complexity of it is such that one particular 
physician if they want to. They'll have to specialize in it, literally. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Yeah, and there are so many different ways it can be ingested. It, it, yeah. Right? It can be uh, cream. It could be smoked. It can be eaten. It can be tincture. Uh, is there a danger if people smoke cannabis to their lungs, like you'd be smoking cigarettes or tobacco? Right. So, great question. So, it looks like that cannabis does not cause increased risk in lung cancer, which is a good news for those who prefer inhaled direction of intake. But it does cause a significant amount of lung problems. Mostly, they are relatively benign, so chronic cough, bronchitis, but there has been some speculation that it could increase risk of chronic pulmonary lung disease. It's not actually very clear. But frankly, think of it this way. If you have multiple different ways of taking it in, and if there's even a slight risk of particular route causing side effects, why would you want to do it, right? You know, if you look back historically, 20, 30, whatever years ago, there was no topicals. <laughs> and of course, nobody even thought of something like applying it rectally or vaginally. So now we have methods that are not only safer in many ways, but they are more precise. So let me give you an example. It's my favorite mantra with cannabis. Start low, go slow, deliver it where it needs to go and stop when you get there. So point being is you start at the lowest dose because you just don't want to overdose. You overdose and then experience is not pleasant. Side effects are actually pretty common. Um, we can talk about that some more, but especially in, in my population of patients and older adults, if they overdose with the first intake, it could be quite unpleasant and actually could be risky. If you are dizzy, for example, and you chances of falling is high, you can break a hip and it can be disastrous. So you have to start very slow. When you're gradually titrating up, there's a couple of things that happen. First of all, what we know for sure is that with most of the cannabinoids, there's something that's called a J-curve of efficacy. In the beginning, when you just start taking it, low doses don't usually work perceivably. They're doing something, but you're not going to feel your pain getting better, for example. But as you increase the dose, you're going to get to a certain point of uh, much better efficacy. But if you keep taking more and more, eventually that efficacy will going to go away. So that we call that a J-curve. You have this kind of a the, the best, your personal dose. Now, the problem here is that and this is part of the clinical challenge with, with working with, with cannabis, that J-curve is very individual. So for some person, the best dose would be, say, 5 milligrams of THC at bedtime for sleep. And for somebody, it could be 20. And how do you know where your personal dose is? Well, we don't know that yet. I mean, there may be genetics that are involved. At some point, we'll learn that. But in reality, it's a trial and error almost always. So you have to start low, go slow. Then, you know, you really want to try to put the cannabis where you have a problem. We have to take a break. And when we come back, more with Dr. Mikhail Kogan on the science behind medical marijuana. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit. But more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad... I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, 
from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're continuing our conversation about the medical uses of cannabis, marijuana, to treat patients. My guest, Dr. Mikhail Kogan, Medical Director of the George Washington Center for Integrative Medicine in Washington, D.C. He's the author of the book, Medical Marijuana, Dr. Kogan's Evidence-Based Guide to the Health Benefits of Cannabis and CBD. You mentioned that uh, you work with elderly and frail people, and you mentioned that it's safer, often more safe than prescription medications. What about on the other end of the curve? Uh, what about younger people? Is there any danger? You talk in the book about problems with uh, young people and their changing brains as they're growing up. What is the danger there? And do we know enough about it? Yeah, we do. We know a significant amount of data. Um, thank God for some of the existing infrastructure and in science. We actually have been studying side effects and toxicity of cannabis for very thoroughly for a long time. So if I were to name sort of two or three major problems that cannabis users can run into it, I would definitely say that the young crowds, teenagers, even young adults, 20 up to probably 25, very heavy use of continuous THC daily definitely is associated with the negative impacts on brain. I don't think there's any doubt about it. And What's interesting that it's CBD seems to ameliorate most of the dangers, although I would say the science is inconclusive as to is that absolutely true and what is the dose of CBD to remove those dangers? It's not very clear, but definitely I would advise the young listeners, you know, be careful, stay with balanced strains if you have to use it and best not to use it at all if you can avoid it. The issue is what do you do with patients who are young and for whom it's effective for certain issues. I think it's a pretty complicated topic. I think the other side effect that always gets brought up is a psychosis or a risk of schizophrenia. It's interesting that at low doses, THC can actually, or cannabis can actually treat certain psychotic states and, and even be sort of beneficial in schizophrenia, but it also increases risk of early onset schizophrenia. Although we think it's because it simply moves the timeline forward. So if somebody would have developed schizophrenia anyway, but if they start using uh, weed, then they're going to develop schizophrenia earlier or faster. You, you, you're using terms like think, we're not sure. To me, how do, how do we get to be more sure about exactly. these things? And don't we need to as physicians to understand it more completely? Of course we do. And I hope some of the politicians are going to listen to this presentation. Well, the, the problem is it's still a Schedule One controlled substance, so we really can't, on the federal level, research it easily. And there's a lot of physicians, a lot of researchers within academia who really want to study it. And unfortunately, it's very difficult because when it's a Schedule One controlled substance, you only have access to federally regulated products. So the federal government has uh, authorized growers and those are the only ones you can use. The problem is that until very recently, their products had nothing to do with what's sold in dispensary. So I could study something that's 30, 40 years outdated 
And then it's going to have zero clinical applications to what patients are actually buying from dispensaries nowadays. So we were very, still very slow. Now things are getting a little bit better. It was recently just the approval of expanding this program where more growers can apply, get licenses and start making products that are closer matching what's in dispensaries. But, you know, it's not going to be a fast shift. We're still going to, we're still years behind. And unfortunately, it's a whole history here. We got set back in science of cannabis by so many decades. And it's unfortunate. I think back in 1937, American Medical Association was the only organization that stood up and said to the government, we should keep cannabis medical and we should not tax it heavily and we should allow patients to use it. But, you know, of course, most listeners know what happened, that nobody listened. And of course, now American Medical Association is against use of cannabis. I think it's kind of ironic. But do you think that there are a lot of doctors? Do you find among physicians, some are willing to suggest medical cannabis to patients, but they don't know enough about it? Well, that's absolutely true. And I actually find also that a lot of doctors are not willing to suggest and they're really afraid. They, there's a, even misconceptions among doctors who are afraid that if I'm going to recommend cannabis, that my license can be taken away, which, by the way, legally completely wrong. Nobody can take your license away if you're just recommending cannabis for appropriate indication. And, uh, but there's a massive lack of education. And, and um, thanks, for Ira, for mentioning that we're trying to change that. We uh, recently got a grant. And we're going to set up a process called Delphi process in which we will identify the competencies in medical education for medical cannabis. Medical education moves, <laughs> it's a conservative field, moves slowly. So in order for something to be uniformly adopted in every medical school, we have to have a set of standards. And there are no set of standards for cannabis education. And that has to change first before we can go back to Association of uh, American Medical Colleges and say, look, you have to really push that every medical student graduating from U.S. medical school has some basic knowledge. And that will gradually start the shift. Part, part of the problem right now in a lot of academic institutions, there are simply no mentors. Oh. The cannabis doctors who decided, look, we're going to be enthusiasts about this field. We're going to learn many of them on their own. And part of it is, you know, they, they've been afraid being in large academic centers because leadership often has been against this topic and it's been difficult to move this field forward within large academic centers. But it's shifting. It's definitely shifting. I give grand rounds at George Washington University on this topic every year or so. And every year I ask the same question. So how many of you here today are recommending cannabis? And every time we get more hands. So it's definitely things are moving forward. They're slowly shifting. Because I I feel from my experience that it's the bud tenders, the people who work in medical marijuana dispensaries who seem to be the at the forefront of advising people who come back time and time again because these folks have been given good advice on cannabis formulations that work, but it's these bud tenders who seem to be the, the practitioners here. Yeah, and you know, it's it could be a blessing, it could be a curse. Um, not all of them are highly educated. The standards of what they're supposed to know is quite different. Some states require every dispensary to have medical director and it's kind of going more that way or or just a medical personnel it doesn't have to be a physician could be a nurse somebody or a pharmacist 
But some states don't have that. And, and the quality of bartenders is kind of all over the place, unfortunately. We actually talk a little bit about this in the book. We also try to discuss how do you deal with this or or even bigger issue. How do you deal with when your doctor says, oh, forget this. This is toxic for you. You shouldn't be using it. Well, how do you engage this doctor in a productive conversation? Well, how do you? Well, I, I mean, you show them the evidence. You can, the, the part of the way we wrote the book was that not just for the public, but because I've been as an educator in this for quite some time and I see those pitfalls. And one of the best ways to convert the skeptic is just to show them the data and, and not walk away. It's just continuously engage the person and saying, look, how about if you consider for this condition, why? Okay, so for pain, for example, let's try it. I'll give you a concrete example. In my own institution, in anesthesia department, chronic pain um, center, there was a lot of resistance for a long time. And finally, after I treated some of their patients and they did really well, they finally said, okay, fine, come give us a talk. And now <laughs> doors is open. So it, it, it's, it, it's basically education tends to trump the ignorance and misconceptions and the fear. I, I think there's still a ton of fear about this, not just fear of legality and then prosecutions for possession and use, but also fear is that it's highly addictive, which by the way is total misconception. It's not totally not addictive, but it's it's minimally addictive, definitely way less addictive than alcohol, for example. Um, and, and there are many others. I mean, there are misconceptions that you have to smoke it, which is totally in 2022. I hope that in the future, we're going to have less and less inhaled products. But there's an old saying that marijuana is a gateway drug. You know what I'm talking about, right? right. It's a more dangerous right, substance. Right, 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 but, right. You, but you write in the book that cannabis could actually be an exit drug. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. So we actually have a large number of studies pointing towards the fact that it seems to be an exit drug, at least an exit drug from two main categories of medications. One is the opioids and the other one is uh, hypnotics or sleeping aids. The opioid exit strategy seems to be evidenced at the pretty high level. We're talking about high quality studies published in leading medical journals in the last couple of years. For sleep exit, it's a little less clear. We have more of a um, data collected from states that legalized medical cannabis. And in those states, the use of over-the-counter and prescription drugs drops by the degree of millions per day So in each state. So we're talking about massive decline. And in terms of the opioid exit strategy, it seems like we're going to save upwards of 30 or 40% of all deaths from opioids if you institute cannabis in a particular um, area. That's incredible. It's incredible. And I, I personally find it a little baffling. Why is there no more talk about this on the high level of politics? Because people, you know, we're in the middle of opioid crisis and there are all kinds of interventions that have been tried and yet nobody at the level of politics talks about cannabis as one of the major strategy, which I just give you the numbers. These numbers are not they're not random numbers. This is a serious research done for multiple different institutions in multiple different states, and it's repeating itself over and over again. And, you know, and it's a little unclear why this is happening. I don't want to speculate, and I hope it changes. Well, if there's so much money involved in the drug industry, and especially in sleep medications, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of uh, lobbying goes on, and 
politicians are are lobbied you, not to do things. You, you know what I'm talking about. You said it. You said it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, yeah, right? I, you know, I don't want to sound that there's a conspiracy theory. I don't think there's any, but I think you're completely right. Uh, it, it, you know, I have a favorite expression to most of my patients. You go into a butcher, you're not going to buy a salad. So, you know, we're operating in this medical industrial complex, something threatening a massive infrastructure of income. Of course, it's going to delay the progress. So is, is it a good thing then that industry is getting more involved with cannabis because that may take, you know, some of the direction in, or move it in that direction? Or is it a bad well, thing? That big business? I, I, I have to give you a legal answer. Maybe uh, <laughs> it's, it's both, of course. I mean, I think the benefit is that when industry gets involved into anything, it expedites the process of expansion here. But of course, they're going to also try to make money out of this. And there's a lot of talking about the other side. There are a lot of hype and, and wrong claims about cannabis. It's, it's kind of wild, wild west out Such there. Such as? Well, especially the newer uh, products like Delta HTHC, for example, which is completely not researched. There's basically no clinical evidence that Delta A does anything at all. And yet uh, you can buy it online and ship it to your house. And there are claims out there that it, it does exactly everything that THC does. You know, we're often industry tends to push the envelope way ahead of evidence. Is it good? Sometimes it actually may be reasonably good. Uh, because it does enforce researchers to move faster. Yeah. But often it's just blandly, uh, you know, making money out of nothing, out of thin air and, and making wrong claims altogether and causing problems in the, in, the, in the process. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. One, one last question for you. Sure. There's speculation that cannabis may help COVID long haulers. What do we know about that? Is there any truth to that any evidence-based data yeah i there's, well there's definitely truth to that data no data is probably just it's going to take a bit longer for data to come out but long haulers have a lot of symptoms that we already talk about they have a lot of sleep disturbances they have a lot of symptoms around pain whether it's neuropathic pain or other types of pain they have a lot of anxieties and and a lot of instability of their nervous system so they're, they're you know triggered quite easily from with a very minor triggers and cannabis has a role to play in everything i just mentioned uh, so it's basically as a help for symptoms there's no doubt in my mind and we've been already at our clinic we started uh, long haulers subsection and partnering with george washington university and we're seeing a lot of patients benefit from cannabis because often there are really number of tools that the patients can use effectively is pretty limited and, and the symptoms can linger for a long time. Very interesting. Thank you for yeah. the work that you do and for taking time to be with us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Dr. Mikhail Kogan, Medical Director of the George Washington Center for Integrative Medicine in Washington, D.C., author of the book Medical Marijuana, Dr. Kogan's Evidence-Based Guide to the Health Benefits of Cannabis and CBD. And before we go, here's a little sonic treat for you from our friends Chris Hoff and Sam Harnett at The World According to Sound.
These crackles and beeps are Wi-Fi networks. They're coming from people's homes and businesses. Frank Swain and Daniel Jones recorded the Wi-Fi signals while walking down a few streets in London. They used smartphone-enabled hearing aids to capture the data, which they then turned into sound. Think of it like a Geiger counter, but measuring Wi-Fi instead of radiation. Faster clicks mean higher Wi-Fi signal strength. And these robotic beeps are the router ID numbers. The guys who made this project call it Phantom Terrains. They want us to consider how much of our urban world is saturated by invisible streams of data. That soundscape is from The World According to Sound, a live audio show, online listening series, and miniature podcast created by Chris Hoff and Sam Harnett. You can hear more at theworldaccordingtosound.org. And that's about it for this week. If you missed any part of the program or you would like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. And of course, you can say hi to us all week on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us the old classic way, scifry at sciencefriday.com. Please send us feedback and tell us what you'd like us to cover. We'd like to hear from you. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato.